This is Geek Gab with your host, Darnall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, April 23rd, 2022. Darnall, uh, I get a story to tell, but how was your week? My week's been great. Uh, took a break from the homestead thanks to a rash of cold, rainy weather. I know, Pacific Northwest being the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I should have seen that coming. Uh, I am aghast and, and, and in shock and, and bowled over. I cannot lie. <laughs> uh, I, I am no longer staying away from frivolous internet entertainments uh spent a little bit of more time catching up with my buddies my bros on places like twitter and their blogs and things like that and let me tell you oh i i, I thought you might have discovered the strong bad archive on uh, youtube oh that that would take me back that does take me back um, somebody asked on twitter Apparently, Stephen King has a new book out on his book. He uses the term lappy for laptop. And they asked if anyone ever used that online. Somebody asked that. And I said, no, nobody ever, ever uses that ever. That's <laughs> just not a thing. And, of course, all the Strong Bad fans said, well, There's this one thing. It is from Strong Bad that I learned how to draw dragons with consummate Vs. Consummate Vs. Consummate. So. And, and a beefy arm. Well, I, you can leave or take the arm, but just as long as you're burninating something. Yeah. <laughs> but you did hook up with the Broasar at just the right time, because the uh, massive flame war that we got involved in, it died down right as you hooked up, catching I'm, up. I noticed that. I, I, I noticed that uh, you guys were doing your thing on Twitter and getting into fights with other people, which is what Twitter's for. Uh, I can't believe there's anything healthy that comes out of that uh, wretched hive. But I, I tell you what, I wasn't missing anything. Uh, it was it was good to catch up with the Brosar people. They... Uh, they were fighting with other OSR guys over. Well, I don't know. I don't know exactly. There's just a bunch of people who don't like the way Jeffro and company uh, present themselves, and and the way they've got this very sort of macho posturing, and and uh, they don't mess around with. Uh, it's all it's all very fun and outlandish and rhetorical, and some people get butthurt because they're afraid that someone's going to tell them that they're playing role-playing games the wrong way. The technical term is they can't handle the bants. That's right. Can't handle the what? The bants. I, I'm uh, I'm not uh, on uh, Twitter, so I don't I don't know the lingo. Well, it's yeah, I think it's internet speak for banter. Uh okay. Um, so yeah, they're, they're really angry. They're upset. Uh, 
This is why I'm glad that an alien race did not land at the North Pole and grant us all the gifts of telepathy, because basically it would just be like Twitter. We would just all see each other's idle thoughts, and all usually your idle thoughts are not worth a second thought. That's right. I, it's uh, uh, and ironically, there's a an old former friend of mine who who we talked about this when he said, uh, "Man, it's crazy because in social media, everybody just sort of gets to see what." their inner thoughts are and it causes way more strife than uh than it should like why you know you start really learning how other people think and you don't like it um really? the, the pl plot twist is is that he was he was mostly talking about me and that's why we're no longer friends but because <laughs> i i knew twitter is kind of a form of entertainment i mean i say things and I range from serious to, you know, uh, sarcastic, but I always try to say things in a way that entertains people, in a way that's different, that's unusual. And I'm not serious about everything I post. I realize that's a bad position because, uh, especially among, well, it just people will tend to take you seriously about everything you post, but I can't help that. <laughs> That's always been my greatest fear in life. I've never wanted to be taken seriously because uh, otherwise I'd have to watch what I say and who wants to do that? Yep. I posted that just last night. I'm like, I don't know what the tweet was. Somebody was talking about, oh, Jordan Peterson was talking about being, you know, disappointed in somebody. And I'm like, that's why I like to keep people's expectations low. Because if I good. exceed them, I'm a champ. And hey. if I don't exceed them, well, that's what they were expecting anyway. As my wise father used to say, aim low and you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> it, I'm sorry I interrupted you, Dornal. It's, it's I don't even remember anything that I was talking about. But uh, I'm enjoying the patron game. Uh, there's a little bit of it that's... Uh, and I'm speaking... Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it's there's a lot of technical and fiddly parts to the rules that, of course, a game master is going to want to unload to, you know, unwitting or willing uh, other parties. So when you go from when you go from hey, this is what I think, you know, this major villain is going to do to all right, I'm gonna, you know, maximize my treasure income and and really try to develop my stronghold and and shake over the countryside and and what have you. Man, that that man Gygax put a lot of fiddly rules in there that you have to contend with. Uh, and when you're first learning it, as I am, it's a pretty time-consuming process. But uh, I'm definitely enjoying it as an exercise in the same way that. A similar way that the Brosar guys sort of experimented with the rules as written and discovered. Let me make a confession. I've been playing uh, role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons, since my school days, and I've never uh, understood the appeal of Dungeons and Dragons dice mechanics. I understand the appeal of the game. The game was one of the, I think, one of the greatest inventions in gaming since the invention of the of the bowling pin. Uh, in terms of allowing people to make a communal story 
about you know spelunking for treasure and so on and so forth, starring all your favorite characters from comic books and pulp novels and so on. You can play you can play a party with uh, Conan next to Aragorn the Ranger and so on and so forth. I mean the the basic appeal is very well understood by me, but after playing even like the Chaosium is is had a, has a simple system where it's based on just percentile dice. You don't have to worry about Thacko or anything like that. You don't have a a psionics mechanism kind of Frankenstein head attached to another an otherwise complex body of of uh, of moving parts. The just about any other dice mechanic system I've ever played in there I, I like better. Uh, the last time I played Dungeons and Dragons, which was not that long ago, uh, I asked the moderator if I had could have my character get down on one knee during a combat so as to minimize my cross-section as I was next to another guy trying to protect him with my shield. And I didn't have a copy of the books with me. I've never owned them. Because uh, I myself, when I moderate, I make up my own dice mechanics. I make up my own system for every game I run because I, I sculpt it to the whatever the artistic effect I'm trying to create is. Uh, and that's <laughs> one advantage of having a professional novelist run your, run your games for you. Uh, but they had to look through their... the, the uh, they all Everyone around the table with me turned into barracks room lawyers looking through their books, flipping back and forth, trying to find the appropriate passages to find out what happens when you're uh, encumbered by kneeling, if it lowers your cross-section, if you lose an action rank, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and I, of course, enjoy it whenever I have to grapple someone in D&D, or you have to find out whether or not you get an attack of opportunity with a bow if someone crosses your, uh, crosses your uh, attack area, which, by the way, you don't. Not A bow and arrow doesn't work. So... Uh, there was a joke in the comic, in the online comic. Uh, uh, I can't think of the name now. DM of the Rings. They, they, the, the guy. The conceit of the comic is that they go through the, they go through the Lord of the Rings as if it was a dungeon crawl done by your typical players and your typical moderator. And there's one whole sequence of them just arguing about whether or not Legolas can get off a snapshot with his bow at an orc who is who is uh, crossing through his attack of opportunity space. It was hilarious. It was more hilarious as I knew the answer to the question that was being asked of the moderator in that comic. The answer is no. You don't get an attack of opportunity with a bow. <laughs> Never. Never. Yeah. Never. I, I, I... And the one thing... Uh, let me just say one other thing. I always have preferred games like Champions or Superworld or uh, uh, Heroes and so on and so forth where you get to design your character more. You see what I'm saying? You have some latitude, don't get me wrong, in picking your character class and your skills uh, or your skill trees in in, uh, in some of those other games. But in a superhero game, you get to say whether you have flame powers or shrinky growy powers or you're wearing a robot suit or what have you. It's just so much more latitude involved that that the player has a little more uh, control over what he can put into the world. So that's my, that's my personal favorite kind of game. I, I think... Your perspective is a very common perspective in the role-playing game space because that appeals to a lot of people, that customization and everything. And the play style that has developed is that superhero play style. I, I say it over and over again, the current edition of Dungeons & Dragons is actually a superhero game with D&D mm. &D trappings. Yep. Now, I will say one other thing. On the other hand, no matter what criticism anyone can level against Dungeons and Dragons, it's still the most popular game. It's still been around for years. 
And one of the things I never thought I would see as a father when I when I had babies, I thought my kids are probably not going to have the same hobbies and habits as I do because they're going to be, you know, they're, they're kids. And I thought Dungeons and Dragons might be a fad. It might go away. I say thee nay. I was talking to them last night on the phone from college where they were telling me about role-playing games that they were both in and that they were running. So I was very proud of my... Both my boys are going to the same school. So I was very proud of them. One is playing a mad scientist and the other is playing a, a kobold, whining, uh, thiefy uh, uh, snitch. So, and he, he does, and he does his impersonation of Peter Laurie's voice whenever he's talking in character. So, That's great. Joy. In the old days, a father would be happy when his son made little league and 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 knocked a home run. But I'm a D and D guy, so when they, when my sons play D and I'm like swelled with pride. So. My other father son, of the year for sure. My second son ran a. Uh, a role-playing game based on the uh, the comic uh, One Piece, uh, from uh, which is uh, from Japan. It's a anime. It's a manga that made into an anime. I strongly recommend it. It's, it's actually one of the best pieces of literature I've ever read, <laughs> I've ever seen. Uh, odd as that sounds, but uh, genius can strike anywhere. And he, uh, if you've seen the show, you'll recognize what I'm about to say. He decided on a house rule that said, if you can tell the moderator a reason why your character at zero hit points has enough. Uh, motivation to stand up again, then you can. Then you can. Then you can re-enter the combat. See, so you have to have at least. It has to be based on your character sheet. You'll have four or five basic issues or dreams of things you want to accomplish, like be the king of the pirates or be the world's best swordsman or map the world or something. And if you can tie in what's happening to one of your dreams, then it gets you an extra. And it gives you an extra boost, extra an extra boost of adrenaline to light stand up again. Because, of course, they do that in the show all the time. They're lying there with their faces crushed into the dirt. And then they suddenly go, ah, oh, but I have to fight for my friends, you know, or my honor's at stake or something like that. And they stand up again, even though they should be dead. I love that. I love the show. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that really shines in that kind of game. And I want to try to answer sort of or, or explain uh, maybe your... Go should ahead. we introduce our guest right now anyway? We probably should. I figured everybody's watching on YouTube, but everybody else is just like, who is this guy? <laughs> I mean, they might actually know who he is, but they don't know who's on our show. So. All right, I'll, 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 give, I'll give one of you guys a shot. At I'm bad at introductions. At introducing me? Yeah, do you want to introduce yourself? I can't introduce myself. I, that's 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 unheard of. That's unseemly. Oh, okay. Well, now I guess I'll do it. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we welcome back to the show for like the fourth or fifth time. Um, friend of the show, uh, good friend, John C. Bright, Grandmaster at Science Fiction, um, and uh, who was kind and generous enough to agree to come on to the show, even though we had no specific topic and we were just going to discuss whatever came up in conversation. Uh, John has published uh, many, many books, uh, of which I've read most of them, and they are quite, quite good. Um, and my first John C. Wright book was The Orphans of Chaos uh, trilogy. Um, and apologies if I've got the name of the trilogy wrong. Um, and 
my most memorable moment from that trilogy is going to be very, very strange um, and peculiar because it always is. Uh, he described a modern version of the god Mars so perfectly that I can't now imagine that specific uh, setup any other way. Um, I just, uh, it is the epitome of what Mars would be if he was in the modern era. Um, and so uh, John is an amazing writer and uh, it's been a pleasure following uh, his career even before I knew him. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to meet him and it's been a delight uh, ever since. Um, and we are thankful and humbled that he's agreed to come on the show again. Um, do you have anything excellent, to add, An excellent introduction. Thank you. Welcome I will back. say, I will say that, uh, uh, Aries was based on a close friend of mine in, uh, in my college who also ended up being my, uh, my best man at my wedding. Uh, his name was Rick Wynn, and he became a captain in the army. And he was Captain Wynn, which is a great name for a captain. And he was the most military guy I ever met. So I am very gratified that he now, in your mind, my portrayal of him rather, uh, is the exemplar, is the is the the essence of Ares uh, in the imagination. That's just that's just a great. Uh, I'm very flattered by that. And yes, that guy was based on a real guy. I knew. <laughs> my wife has a T-shirt that says, "Be careful, or you're going to end up in my novel." I'm not. I'm not kind as her, and so I don't give. I don't give anyone any warnings. <laughs> That's great. I think my first. Uh, I'm not. A, I'm not a prolific reader. I'm not an avid reader. But I did read. I think it was Count Two Million. No, Count to a Trillion. A trillion. Yes. I know. Now, what, let, me I, tell, I, let, me, let me tell you really quickly why that why that title always makes my eye twitch. Which is why you're not looking at my face right now. I'm just showing you my cartoon. When I wrote the title, when I wrote the book, the national debt was below a trillion dollars. And the word trillion was a number only astronomers used. Okay. Now, by the time it was published, however, it took me like a year to write. It was already too late. And everyone was in the word trillion was appearing in the newspapers. And it was no longer an, astro an astronomical term. So it lost some of its, it lost some of its effect. And if you count it to a trillion, use counting one second per number is about the amount of time it would take to get from Earth to M3, the globular cluster to M3, which is the the site of the uh, uh, the action in that in that novel. So that's why it's called Counter Trillion. Whoa! But sorry, go I, ahead. You were gonna. You were it gonna... reminds me. I was about to cue up the the Austin Powers joke. You know the the one million dollars. You know, and in, and in uh, you know nineteen sixty, you get laughed at. Yeah. And yeah. then in, in the current day, you get laughed at because it's nothing. Yes. Yep. Yep. Holy cow. Uh, I think I also read, uh, which I, I liked quite a bit. Now, did you, you had well, a... Let me interrupt to say, I had someone read Count to a Trillion who did not understand that it was the first book in a series, and they thought the main character just died at the end when a building fell on him. He, he The prince, he's not eaten by the streaking eel at this time. He's, he's not actually dead. The, the story goes on. But the publisher <laughs> would not let me put to be continued on the last page because they thought it would harm book sales if someone didn't know 
it was the first book of the series. Were you aware that there were other, six other books in the series? Yeah, yeah, vaguely. Okay. I, I I didn't follow up and read them, but I, I just my I'm my mind is boggling at the idea. All books are in a series now. Are, are there any standalone books ever written anymore? At least in fiction or science fiction or, or I adventure? can speak for no other person but myself. I wrote exactly one standalone book in my career, and it's called Iron Chamber of Memory. And it was a book that came to me uh, in a dream from heaven. So I'm not even I'm not even really responsible for it. <laughs> the other book that I wrote that was in a series, but not my series, was was uh, Null a Continuum, where the widow of Ava and Vot allowed me to write a sequel to his his two books, World of Null A and Players of Null A, which was my favorite book when I was a kid. So as a science fiction writer, I thought I would I I always wanted to be a science fiction writer. I always knew I was going to be a science fiction writer. I knew that I was just going to try to keep trying to do it until I could do it. But I did not realize that I would get the opportunity to write a sequel to my favorite book by my favorite author. See, so that was that was a, a delight and uh, to me. I'm, I'm just kind of sorry the book did not uh, did not uh, get more fame and uh, attention because I it was a, it was a labor of love and I really really enjoyed writing it. I and I got the, to and I got to answer who he really was, which is which was left uncertain by the by the original author. Uh, that must have been a treat for sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, and the widow liked it. She liked the ending. She liked the happy ending. Oh, that's sweet. Um, let me think. The other one, uh, the other one of yours, I read. You did a, a collection of stories on time travel, uh, which I'm I'm blanking on the name right now. City Beyond Time. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I'm glad because I hate time travel stories. <laughs> That was the premise, wasn't it? Like, like if, if I'm going to do time travel, I'm going to do it in this particular way because that's the only way it's going to make sense to me. And and there we go. It's it's because I mean my my basic theory of time travel stories is they're they're always going to be like an Escher drawing. They're going to be fun to look at, and they're not going to quite make sense because you're going to go, well, wait, how can the water wheel be turning if the water is moving uphill in the top part of the picture, but it's going downhill in the bottom part of the picture? And, you know, how come the, the post at the far end is actually supporting the capital at the near end and so on and so forth? I mean, they're, all, they're always kind of a trick because time travel is when you can change the future, when you can know the future and change the past, right? Otherwise, it's not time travel. But, but if, you, if you know the future, then the past can't be changed. And if you can change the past, then you can't know the future. So time travel, by definition, contradicts itself, okay, just innately. So the trick is to make the contradiction look like it's not a contradiction by introducing some other limitation or some other element to 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 make it so that the make it so the obvious fact that if you had a time machine you could solve all your problems instantly goes away. You see what I'm saying? So let, let me use a, let me use a, a, an example from a favorite of mine, which is uh, "By His Bootstraps" by Robert Heinlein. The main character there is visited by a, a mysterious visitor who looks a lot like him. Trying to convince him to step through a glowing, a glowing uh, a circle of uh, energy, uh, to trick him into meeting the time traveler and then later becoming the time traveler, and he keeps waiting for the time traveler to show up so he can wrestle his power from him. And the surprise ending, which should be no surprise, the thing was published in the forties, uh, is that he himself is the guy he was he was trying to replace. He actually is the time traveler. Now the story only works 
because the main character is either drunk or not paying attention in one part of the scene. And when he goes to the scene again, he doesn't try to make any changes. And he keeps secrets from his, his older self, keeps secrets from his younger self for no particular reason, just to make the events come out as proper. See? Hmm. So, and it's one of those things that if you actually think about it, there's no way it would actually work that way unless it was destined to work that way, in which case everything is set in stone. And if everything is set in stone, then you can't change the past. If you can't change the past, it's not time travel. Not really. There's another story by uh, uh, the same guy who wrote the same guy who wrote uh, Stars My Destination, Alfred Bester, called The Men Who Murdered Muhammad, where a time traveler can change anything, but it only affects himself. And if he changes the world so much that he's not in the world anymore, he turns into a ghost, <laughs> a literal ghost that can't affect anything. See? Hmm. So there's time travel, but he can't actually change anything except for himself. There's a short story by Fritz Lieber called Try and Change the Past, where a guy is, is, is uh, recruited by the Time Lords, by the, the spiders and the snakes who are fighting a huge war through time. And during a moment when he's unobserved, he goes AWOL. He sneaks away and tries to save himself from being killed by his jealous wife. So he goes and replaces the, it takes the bullets out of the gun, but it doesn't work. You say, no matter what he does, somehow he still ends up getting killed. And finally, he goes back and redoes the scene again. So there's not even any weapon in the room. She walks in, she does the same, has the same argument. And then a micrometeorite from outer space, the size and shape of a bullet, plunges through his skull at the last minute. And the author goes, and the narrator goes, Look, if the universe is willing to arrange such a ridiculous coincidence as being struck through the head by a meteorite, there's no point in trying to change the past. In any case, it's a great short story. Don't get me wrong. It's a fun read. But, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a it's like a Twilight Zone story. It just has a twist ending, and there's no story to it. There's, no, there's nothing else but the twist, uh, which, is, which is fine. And yet, if you can't change the past, you can't really time travel. See? So that's, that's my whole objection to time travel stories is that they don't really work. Given that objection, I still think there's, you can use it as a metaphor for certain things, which I did in my, in my book, you know. In my stories. So what was the, what did you use? What was the metaphor there? Uh, I thought that time travel is being used, is being used as a metaphor for people who want to escape from their responsibilities. They put the, they want the cause, but they don't want the effect. Whenever you try to escape cause and effect, you're trying to do something immoral. Time travel is innately immoral because a time traveler should kill baby Hitler, but killing an innocent baby is wrong. If you see where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. So, so the time lords in the are the time wardens, as I call them, in the city beyond time in Metachronopolis, always end up erasing themselves because they keep changing things about their past. And in my version, time would allow you to do a certain number of changes of a certain degree of magnitude. But if you went too far, the probability wave would break down, and you would just basically turn into mist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you read the, if you read the story, the, the the story is about a uh, a time lord trying to trick a detective into solving his own murder, which, of course, you can do in a time travel story. You can have your detective try to solve his own murder uh, because the Time Lord is trying to trick the guy into into, uh, accepting a certain future that he already has planned. And when the guy doesn't do it, the guy basically decides to give up time travel forever himself to to, to just let the power fall out of his hands rather than to let it it trap him into a a lifetime of immorality. And then the whole story actually turns out to be the report being given an earlier version of the same guy saying, now you have to make the decision based on what I've just told you. 
that that last idea, by the way, I stole shamelessly from uh, 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 David Gerald, who wrote a book called The Man Who Folded Himself, which has maybe all the time paradoxes you'd ever want to see in a book. Um, my head's doing my head's spinning just thinking about it. Well, um, the point of time travel stories is, like I said, it's like an Escher drawing where the snake eats its own tail. The the cleverness of the of the impossibility of the paradox is what is what the author is trying to sell as the as the selling point. I also wanted to give my my stories like a little Aesop's fable kind of moral to it too, you know. You're stunned. You're stunned. You're overwhelmed. <laughs> um, Time travel does that to people. And then Back to the Future came along. It was so big. It's it's hard. I mean, it may be easier now to make a new mark uh, to where people can't think about it any other way. But for you know, for a long time, it's been Back to the Future, Back to the Future Two specifically. An excellent way of doing things, by the way. Uh, I mean, I just love the scene where the time traveler comes across his own gravestone. Yeah, you because know, he's dead in that timeline. Yeah. yeah. So. Um. And I do like the movies, and I would watch them again. I'd recommend them. But as a science fiction writer, I got to point out that the moral they said at the end of the third movie, which was where the time traveler says to his young apprentice, uh, the future's not set. You can be anything you want. Make your, you can make your own destiny. If that were true, the second movie would not have happened. <laughs> He's trying to destroy the time machine for most of the second movie because he realizes it's too dangerous and it could destroy the universe. And then suddenly when he gets his own time train and he gets married to a rather attractive actress... He's got two children named Jules and Vern. Then it's okay. <laughs> Time travel is okay. So, yes, uh, it, it was a impressive to me and amazing that they could make two sequels that were as good as they were. Because the first movie was was almost pitch perfect. Uh, the first Back to the Future movie, where the guy has accidentally interfered with his his parents getting married. And like every time travel story, of course, if your time machine breaks the first time you use it, or if you're Doctor Who and your time machine has never worked correctly, then it can be used as a machinery to carry you to the site of the action. But then you don't, you can't use the machine itself to solve the problem by going back in time and, preve and, and preventing yourself from, you know, doing the mistake that leads to the problem. Does that make sense? If you had a working time machine, you don't have a story. So the time machine has to be limited or it's got to be broken or, or it can only work at certain periods or it's got to run out of fuel or it, it uh, or the timeline will try to change if you try to change it or something like that. There's got to be some or, other limitation to it than just quantum leap where, where you don't have control over it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it can't be real time travel. It can be close to time travel. It can be like uh, uh, one of my favorite time travel stories is not a time travel story at all. It's a, it's a Christmas Carol. The Christmas Carol by Dickens has been remade starring bunnies and Muppets and everyone else you can ever imagine by more people in more times and places than ever because the thing is so mythically perfect. And yet the spirits tell him he's only seeing visions. He doesn't have control of the time travel. He doesn't just go back in time and make it so he marries the girl he lost. He sees that vision and it makes him cry. So it's 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 really well done, but it's not. It's... It's a time travel story done right, where a guy sees his past and sees his future. And the future, for Dickens, doesn't talk. You don't see its face. It really points its bony fingers at things you're supposed to look at. And, and by the end, you're on your knees crying over your own gravestone, gravestone, promising to change. See, that's why I like Christmas Carol as the best time travel story. Because it doesn't eliminate the moral choice involved, 
merely by going back and doing a do-over. Most time travel stories, you can just do a do-over, or they make up an artificial reason why you can't. But in that one, he actually had to change his ways. It's a story of redemption. All the, all the best stories are stories of salvation and redemption, you know. Even uh even even a lighthearted story, a pulp story like Star Wars, uh the movie's about Darth Vader being saved by his son. That's what the movie's yeah. actually about. It's a story of redemption. It's a great scene, by the way. Just in case you didn't in case you haven't seen it. <laughs> Spoilers. I, yeah, he throws the Emperor down a fiery pit. He blows up. There, uh, that's there, pretty, just, it's pretty good redemption, yeah. And uh, there may be rumors that Disney made a mockery or a takeoff or a ripoff of those of those movies, but I I refuse to live in that timeline. As soon as I get my time machine working, I'm I'm moving to the nearby parallel timeline where where Disney hadn't lost its mind and still knew how to tell a good story. And sadly, it's not a, it's not a timeline far from this one, in my opinion. Well, good luck. I just finished uh, reading. Uh, for I think the second or third time uh, ever, and that would be, you know, for this uh, three over three decades since I've read it, a book called Replay by Ken Grimwood. Um, that is a very very peculiar sort of time travel story. Um, it's it was written in 1988 um and a guy dies from a heart attack while he's at work um and then wakes up 25 years earlier in 1963 uh he's 18 he's just in his freshman year of college um and he has you know those whole 25 years to live again and so the first part of the book is him reliving that uh, and what he does to, you know, he's got some big bets he can make right at the beginning to set himself up financially. And then he makes a stock firm and, you know, parlays that fortune into uh, a mega fortune because he can invest in IBM and Apple and things like that. But as soon as he gets to 1988 again, he dies again. Um, and then over the next, he calls these replays because he's replaying that part of his life. And slowly he notices this skew developing where he keeps on being reborn or reawakening in his old life at a later and later date. And none of the changes he's made during these replays persist. So anything he's managed to accomplish in one of these extra lives uh, matters. Uh, and he doesn't realize that's going to be the case. So in the second one, he gets married and has a daughter, which he's never had a child before. And she's 11 when he dies again. And he wakes up, you know, 18 a few days later in the second one. And he's lost his daughter. She's gone. And he's just devastated uh, mm -hmm. in fact she never existed because he never married that woman he never had that life and it gets uh further and further on he finds someone from his 
uh, finds another person who's going through replays who died close to the same time he did, um, uh, who's a woman, and and they try to meet up together after uh, after they die. And I just think it's uh, exactly what you're saying, where he doesn't have any control over the time travel. Um, and he doesn't right. have a machine, and the mechanism by which it happens, who's behind it, is never explained. And other than the, time, the uh, I'm reminded of the movie Groundhog's Day, which had a very similar premise. So that that took place in a day rather than over over a span of lifetime. Yeah, but the idea was that you couldn't take anything with you except for the changes you made in your own soul. Right. See? And that also was a, a story about redemption, a rather popular one too. The guy has to kind of redeem himself because he just replays it the same day over and over again. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know why I find it such an interesting book, uh, but I've thought about it every now and then. Um, well, how could it not be? It's it's a story about what if I had a second chance? Every, everyone thinks about that at some point. You know, that's what I think drives time travel stories. I think I think the human experience of regret and the human wonder of what the future holds, the human curiosity, is what makes it so you you the, you, you want to read a story about. What would actually happen if you could take back your mistakes, or could visit the visit what's destined? Uh, and also on a, on a simple level, there's actually two kinds of time travel stories: time paradox stories, like the second Back to the Future movie, where the time machine itself causes and solves the problem, and merely time adventure stories, where you want to have a guy. Uh, you know, fight King Arthur's knights. You want to have a modern man shoot one of King Arthur's knights with a with a with a revolver. So you you just have him wake up in the in the medi in the medieval period. You know, like like connect Yankee with King Arthur's court. Uh, Doctor Who is almost always just time adventure stories. I've only think of one or two episodes where there was actually a paradox involved or something of the sort. Usually, the the, the TARDIS just takes you to the court of you know the pyramids of Mars or the or the court of Kublai, of Kublai Khan or something. And then the doctor and his companions are there and, you know, have, have the adventure. They don't, as far as I know, ever use the time machine to go back one day and then warn Kublai Khan of the coming invasion or something. They're, 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 they're stuck in the events as they're going. But you can't have, you know, one of King Arthur's knights fight a Tyrannosaurus Rex without a time machine. So those, that's what those stories are for. And, I, my, and my blessing on those, those, those are not the stories that annoy me. In fact, I myself wrote a rather elaborate uh, trilogy of a guy who gets sent into the far future uh, uh, when all the previous human races that come after us, <laughs> the, the next, I forget, it was like seven or nine different races of mankind all get resurrected and they all they all look down upon and hunt the, uh, and hunt the primordial humans as, as the game animals, except he's a big game hunter, so he can, he can hunt them back. That was the premise of that story. Was that was my that was my nod of the head to um, to Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, Barsoom books. I was trying to do my own version of uh, of uh, someone I loved. And by the way, if I'm still bragging about my books, if you let me brag for one more second, I was so offended at Disney's Star Wars that I decided to write my own version of what I would have done had they had they asked me. And I originally intended to write a, a trilogy of a, like little adventure stories called Star Quest. And I've since revised, revamped my outline. It's now going to be like a 12-book series. <laughs> oh, boy. Right now I'm at the end of the fifth book and writing the sixth. I haven't released the first one yet. 
I won't have the editor go through all the books at once, and we're going to release them kind of quickly once we're done. But uh, uh, I'm furiously working on that because I decided that uh, that anyone can tell a story, a space opera about a galactic empire and so on and so forth. But but you don't have to. Uh, good heavens, you don't have to ruin it. You don't have to. Uh, uh, you don't have to put down the previous generation of heroes to make the current generation look good, which is what I think was one of the major flaws in uh, the Last Jedi. And I never, I, I have yet to watch, and probably never will watch, uh, Rise of Palpatine or whatever it was called. Oh yeah, goodness, don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're. Oh, I think you're spot on with the, with your, comment on making fun of or, or just tearing down the previous heroes. Uh, it's not necessary at all, uh, especially when sort of one of the premises of, of going back and bringing back those characters uh, for anybody, for anybody who wants to see, uh, you know, a geriatric Harrison Ford, you know, play geriatric Han Solo. Uh, you, you also don't want to see him get killed, right? That's not and not killed pathetically. You know what would have been much better they, if they'd been one simple change. Why not have him be the, the old wise senator and have his wife be the one who only once ever got a chance to dress up as a bounty hunter and, and sneak into a crime lord's lair and really wants to be a spy and have her go off and sneak behind enemy lines and have her be the spy and have him be the and have him be the uh, the senator rather than the other way around. You know. Yeah. Why did they demote her? Why did they demote her from princess to general? What's wrong with them? I mean, princess from outer space, a space princess. What is wrong with them? Never mind. I know what's wrong with them. It's 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 political correctness. It's woke. Oh yeah. I, oh yeah. It's a, I it's will a brain never, brain. ever, ever forgive them for not having a proper reunion of the original characters when they could yeah. have. Yeah. I just. And now, and now they can't because the uh, one of them's passed away. Yep. Hey, do you remember that time when they when they made a story and killed off one of the original characters, and then the actors of one of the other ones passed away, and then they didn't bother just killing that one instead. Gave yeah. gave her superpowers. <laughs> I uh, my book, The Last Straw, is is one of my few nonfiction books. I've written a few nonfiction books, and that one is just a a book-length criticism of The Last Jedi movie. And I call it The Last <laughs> Straw because it was the straw that broke my camel's back. I used to be as big a fan of Star Wars as you could be. And by big, I, I'm talking about my weight, not necessarily how, how fanish I was. Uh, an enormous fan, a, 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 an obese fan. And yet, they somehow drained all my love and enthusiasm for Star Wars away from me. That's really hard to do. I was a really big fan. And they did it. They successfully did it. I now don't care a fig about Star Wars, about any Star Wars product, you know, about anything they do. I still have my R2-D2 trash can right by my side at this moment while we're speaking. Okay? And wow. yet, and yet, they're dead to me. They are dead to me. Uh, and I've got a, I've got a slightly different perspective. I'm, uh, I'm a little bit younger, and I, I'm of the age where Star Wars is that fun adventure movie that came on TV once or twice a year. <laughs> uh, you, didn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't Chris, spend your allowance seeing it in the theater over and over again, like like I did, like some people I know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's and we loved it. Of course, it was a big cultural thing. We loved it, but 
sure. by the time the prequels came out, you know, I I'd seen the, you know, I'd, I'd seen them on VHS, you know, countless times. Yeah. And uh, but I didn't I didn't get it. It, it the the hype over the Star well, Wars and the prequels in particular seemed manufactured. To understand like, the, the hype for the original, you have to understand the original came out at a time when the when the when the big movies in theaters were movies like The French Connection and Chinatown and Easy Rider and other movies that were all dark and grim and socially relevant. And Star Wars came out as a piece of perfect nostalgia. When the word crawl started spanning up, I assure you, not a single person in the theater had ever been, was old enough to have been in the theater in the 40s and 30s when they used to have word crawls in front of the serials, but everyone knew what it was. We all recognized it instantly. It was part of our cultural background. It was part of our mass, uh, Jungian's mass subconsciousness or something, okay? And it was, it was Star, it was, uh, it was Buck Rogers. It was, it was Flash Gordon. We all knew what it was. We all recognized it. Space Princess, Evil Empire, guy in a Nazi helmet with a big black cape. I mean, the villain had a big black cape on. You see, you can't you can't get better than that. And it copied the mood and the attitude of the 40s because the 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 George Lucas was copying from his youth, right? I mean, it was, it was meant to be nostalgic. Well, what happened was is unexpectedly he copied more than he knew. He actually got something of the American character and the American optimism, American spirit in that first film and so it was wildly popular because all the other films at that time in the 70s were grim and dark and dull and boring okay mm. now the prequel came out by the time he made the prequels he was too full of himself and he was no longer mimicking something nostalgic from his youth he was trying to do a different thing with them and in my opinion mostly failed the the prequels look like gold compared to the disney's but they're not good movies. They're still not good. I'm sorry. I I, I want to like them, but I but I can't. They're okay. Okay. The, visually, they're splendid. In terms of, in terms of the, the the sheer spectacle, top notch. But the story doesn't quite hang together. It doesn't quite make sense. And I'm sorry, you can't do a space opera. You can't do an optimistic Buck Rogers show about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. You have to understand what makes empires fall to do it realistically. If you're doing it realistically, you're not doing a space opera. A story about plucky rebels overthrowing an empire, that you can do. That's par for the course. So the whole idea of the prequels and telling Darth Vader's version of the story, I mean, that's like trying to redo the the gospel, uh, the passion of the Christ by telling it from Judas's point of view. Oh, wait, they did that. It was called Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, it's just a bad idea to try to make your villain your main character. Unless you're writing a tragedy, but even then, who? If you're writing a tragedy, you're not doing you're not doing Buck Rogers. You're not doing a space opera. You're not doing a, a, a you know an exciting chapter play. So, um, and in 1977, when Star Wars came out, the previous year was 1976, um, and it was a year of celebrating, you know, the bicentennial of America, and so. People had gotten a lot of Americana and um, patriotism yeah. and things like that. I, I was living in Germany at the time, and on the newscasts, 
they had uh, on the newscasts on Armed Forces Network, the TV network for the soldiers. That was the only right. English language network in the country. They right. had the uh, anchors dress up in colonial era uniforms, tricorn <laughs> hats and everything, and give updates uh, as if they were covering the battles of the Revolutionary War. Marvel Comics came out. I was I was a subscribed to Doctor Strange comic, which is the only comic I read at the time. And in Doctor Strange, uh, he uses a magic spell and travels back to uh, to colonial uh, to colonial era uh, uh, America for that year in in seventy six, uh, just in time to have uh, uh, Ben Franklin make it make an outrageous pass at Clea, the uh, the sorcerer's <laughs> uh, sorcerer's girlfriend. So everyone was uh, caught up in the patriotism at the, in that at the. So to have a movie come out in the summer, you know, six months later, that was easily read as, you know, plucky rebels rebelling against this giant empire. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure part of the reason why it became so popular is it tapped into people's feelings of, you know, patriotism and loving the country and, and all of these things they had just recently been reminded of for a year. And I agree with you. And to be honest, I don't think George Lucas, based on his public comments he's made since, I don't think he understood how he captured lightning in a bottle. He himself yeah. was thinking of the empire as America. Yes. And the, 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 the forest moon of Endor as being like the American involvement in, in Vietnam. And like he was rooting for the commies. <laughs> Dude, you are not going to get a major audience if you're going to write a movie where you think that rooting for the commies is a good idea, you know. So, uh, but yeah, it. And I've heard people who who have come to low Star Wars and are trying to throw dirt back on the original trilogy, and I'm like, look, George can think whatever he wants to think, and he. Maybe he meant to put that into the original movie, but he he failed. He did it badly. He yeah. didn't succeed in making the rebellion the uh, you know Viet Cong. But uh, whoever, but when they did Rogue One, they managed to make the rebels seem like nasty bad guys who were willing to kill people for for uh, uh, cynical reasons, you know, and that and, was. And they could have done. They could have done so much with that. It could have been so brilliant. That I mean, may be. They spent billions of dollars acquiring this property, billions, and they didn't have the oversight to 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 get a fan of Star Wars to to tell him what not to do, how not to make this. You might be giving him too much credit. That Get sort it. of stuff is appropriate for a Tom Clancy book. Or a Tom Clancy movie, and I'm thinking here without remorse. I don't know if you've read Tom Clancy. I've, I've read some of Tom Clancy. I haven't read without remorse, but I, I read I read a few of his books, and I liked him. I liked him a lot. Um, but you know, spies and things like that have to do kind of bad things sometimes. That's sure, real. But, but Buck Rogers, Star but, Wars, but not Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon right. is not. See, that's the difference. That's, it's not. It's like the, it's like opera. the difference between it's like the difference if I can refer to an older science fiction story. It's like the difference between the Lensman series by E.E. E. Doc Smith, where the Lensmen are super policemen who have psychic powers, who can uh, infiltrate enemy aliens and, and become emperor and whatever, okay? And Starship Troopers by Bob Heinlein, which was about a grunt, which was about an infantry fighter 
who sometimes right. had to make hard decisions and, and had a guy die on the way up when you're trying to do, do retrieval and so on and so forth, you say. There, there's oh, a difference between space opera and military SF. If right. you want to have your black ops guys shoot a guy in the back of the head in a military SF, fine. God bless you. Go 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 in power. But if you're trying to do Buck Rogers, if you're trying to do heroes, heroes do not shoot people in the back. Okay? Not nobody, not know how. It's just it's ridiculous. It's not Star Wars. Now, let me tell you what is Star Wars. Mandalorian is Star Wars, even though that was a Western. Because Star Wars is supposed to be a samurai Western set in space. They actually understood, that guy understood what the show was supposed to be about. And I thought Mandalorian was simply top-notch. I thought, I thought that it showed that you could do a Star Wars show in the Star Wars universe without it being about the main characters. Without it being about the rather limited Princess Leia fighting the, fighting the evil empire. That was well, John Favreau, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, in Starship Troopers, he drops a bomb into the middle of a bunch of civilians. Yeah. Uh, that's just... That's just Mill SF. That's not Star Wars. Right, it, it, right. Because you know, you're in a, in a Mill SF, you want to make your main character hard and lean and mean and make him a fighting machine, and he doesn't stop for a niceties, okay? If he stops for niceties, it's not, it's not the right genre for that. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, a, it's supposed to be a war picture. It's supposed, it's supposed to be nitty-gritty. People are supposed to bleed when they're wounded. But in a, in a space opera, when someone gets shot with a blaster, he just falls on his butt like you see in an old Western, and you don't see a pool of blood. Because it's, it's glamorized. It's a different genre. It's like, I, I mean, romances are also glamorized. They, rom they, they glamorize the act of falling in love. And I, no matter how you write a romance, if the guy doesn't get the girl at the end, it's not a proper romance, you know. No matter how you well, slice I mean, it, <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like the Star Wars is is not. It, well, it's just an appropriate setting for certain kinds of stories and and inappropriate for others. I mean, that's well, yes, I, no. I thought I thought the Mandalorian was slightly more cynical and slightly more, uh, you know, kind of hardcore than Star Wars itself, and I still thought it worked correctly because I thought it had that same vibe as. Uh, Stagecoach starring John Wayne, or or even uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It had a little bit of, it had a slightly darker tone, but I thought it was still appropriately within the context of the Star Wars universe. And I thought they did a perfectly fine job with it. Okay, so if if Star Wars, uh, the you know the original Star Wars is a great example of a, a sort of a pulp adventure or maybe a pulp serial or what have you. Yeah, uh, but uh, Star Wars also lended itself pretty well to a western, uh, Lone Lone Wolf and Cub. If you uh, want to read, um, if you want to read Mill SF set in a Star Wars background, they're in Galaxy's Edge, uh, by my good friend uh, Nick Cole. I mm -hmm. can't remember the name of his co-author, and it's just Jason great Onspach, Jason Onspach, and, and Nick Cole. It's just pure Mill SF, but it's and they don't say it's Star Wars, but it's it's Star Wars, okay. And but it's told from the point of view of the of the troopers, and the troopers are just trooper guys. They act like trooper guys. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the thing could have been written by Larry Korea for all I know. It's, it's that good. It's that well. It's not as good as Larry Korea, but it's pretty good. Sorry, Nick. It's you're not as good as Larry Korea, but you're pretty good. And I recommend it. And I wholeheartedly recommend it. And if, especially if you want to get into a series where you can just go in through one book after another after another, like like eating potato chips, because he's already cranked out like eleven or twenty of these things. And they're all maintains its quality, you know. 
And I got to tell you, when he does his version of the Force, the first time it comes on stage, when the evil emperor, not the guy who's not actually the evil emperor, comes on stage, it's really spooky because, of course, it's nothing has been supernatural, nothing has been eerie, nothing has been unnatural up until that point in his work. See, so I would say even Millicent, you could do in a Star Wars background, but I'm not sure why Rogue One just didn't quite make it for me. It didn't quite please me. I think the the main character wasn't clear, the story arc wasn't clear. The it had some great visuals though. It's another one of those movies I really wanted to like it because of my fondness for the for Star Wars, but it didn't didn't quite make it. Except for the scenes that had Darth Vader in them. Darth Vader in Rogue One is really impressive. <laughs> really impressive. As he should be, as he's supposed to be. So Yeah, why is the whole galaxy terrified of this guy? Oh, that's that's why. Oh, okay. Because because he can walk into a room with a with a red lightsaber in his hand and I I will now kill everyone here. And he then proceeds to do it. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really, really interesting, though. Uh, okay, but let's say, yeah, you take Galaxy's Edge, just, just hypothetically speaking, because I, I want to follow that thread. Uh, if you put the serial numbers back on Galaxy's Edge and branded it as an official Star Wars book, do you think do you think it would still work? It would be difficult because you're taking the you're taking the Imperials as the as the good guys. If you set it far enough in the past, you see, in the in the, in the original Star Wars, which I will always call Star Wars, and which you young whippersnappers are it's not always, allowed. It's to call called Star Hope. Wars. Yeah, A New Hope okay. is not the title of the movie. Go New on. Hope's not the movie. Uh, if in 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 Star Wars, the Empire rose and the Republic fell many years ago. Some, sometimes it's it's uh, maybe even thousands of years ago. In the prequels, the Empire is less than 10 years old. It, it's younger than, than Luke himself. So it's a recent phenomenon. It lasts for one Emperor, and then when he gets killed, it, it falls apart. See? Mm. Now, that's that you can't forget that continuity. Let's go back to the continuity of something more like the extended universe. If you had the Empire in its early days, when the Empire was first getting started, and you did something at like Galaxy's Edge, where the troopers of the Republic are fighting against a rising corruption on Trantor. Excuse me, they don't call it Trantor. They call it the Coruscant. Uh, and, Which is uh, a great name. Coruscant is a great name for Trantor. But those of you who haven't read Isaac Asimov are not going to know what I'm talking about. Uh that's the name of that was the name of Isaac Asimov's galactic uh, uh, capital. That was a city of, from pole to pole. Uh, but Coruscant's a great name. Uh, in my book, it's called Septentrion. In any case, you could do Galaxy's Edge if you set it far enough in the past that it didn't have an emotional connection with the rebels in the, front, in the present. And unfortunately, you'd have to do it as a tragedy because those guys lose. The Republican, the Republican army loses to the to the Empire as the Empire takes over. So, but you could have them win their battle, and that would be the end of their story, and the corruption would then take place off stage at some point in the future. Does that make sense? So, if you said it a thousand years ago, fine, you're you're golden. Why not? I think that's part of the success. Uh, they did the same thing in video games. Knights of the Old Republic was a. Uh... One of the best Xbox games. Yeah. And it was set just 
in the past. There like was maybe, a game. Maybe a thousand years. I don't remember what the name of the game was. It wasn't one I played. I just saw like a commercial for it that picks up after the Battle of Endor in the wreckage, the expanding wreckage of the Death Star, and the Imperial troopers are trying to regroup and, and get out of there. And they're being shot at by the by the rebellion. And I believe you could play either a, a rebel or a, or an imperial. Uh, and just the visual of all the wreckage of the Death Star floating in this massive cloud as little fighters and, and troop ships dart in amongst the uh, the burning the burning trash is just amazing, visually splendid. I don't I honestly don't remember which game it is, but it was it was it looked good. It, the uh, the uh, art direction was was spot on, perfect. And the All right, the movies didn't do that. Now we're back to my favorite topic: the gaming. <laughs> uh, Star Wars, you know, has famously spun off many role-playing games and board games and video games and things like that. A mill SF version of that, like Galaxy's Edge, could make a very good war game. Sure. Um, West End Games also put out an actual, honest to goodness, Star Wars game back when it was just the original trilogy. And, that's uh, funny. Hey, I, if you play a bounty it. hunter, you get a jetpack, which is awesome. I played a uh, the, the one time my my son ran a game for us. I played a uh, a quixotic Jedi whose name was uh, uh, Don Q H ten, I think, or something like that. Uh, who was a who was a a chuckle headed uh, semi insane person who believed all the old stories and all the old myths about the uh, the Jedi, and he himself actually had a little bit of powers, but no one believed him because he was a nutcase. Don QRT, I think, was his name. Yeah, hilarious. He was the son of a gambling family, and his, so all his parents were racketeers and stuff, and they didn't like him being an idealist. <laughs> that sounds great. See, this is West End Games is... did a good job with capturing the mood and spirit of Star Wars especially since they, they gave suggestions for possible players to characters to run, you know, including the annoying kid of uh, the space pirate and so on and so forth. And I thought they did a good job of capturing the mood and, and trying to and, and encapsulating it in a game with it, with a reasonable dice mechanic. Would you believe that for all my love of role-playing games, I've never seen or played the West end game, star Wars. Uh, it's probably due to age because West End was a big deal. When I was living in New York, I uh, actually uh, tried to get a job with them at one point to be a writer for them. Well, well, I'll have to take a look at that game. I think um, it, I love the way you describe your characters because that uh, that's what Star Wars sort of uh, brings out, evokes that you like. You want to have those cool, fun heroes that live in this in this universe that uh that sort of lends itself to sort of a superhero game as opposed to a nitty-gritty war game Whereas well not necessarily superhero because flash gordon himself is not a superhero but he is a hero but it's but it's it's a very glamorized form of heroism flash gordon is never put into a position where he has to decide whether to i don't know chop off his hand or, or stay chained to a rock now i shouldn't use that as an example because i believe they did that to aquaman <laughs> So maybe sometimes nowadays comic books are a little more nitty gritty, especially since the '80s. You know, especially since the influence of Alan Moore and uh, and Frank Miller. Uh, but I interrupted you, and I apologize. You, you were saying? I, I I'm not sure I was saying anything more interesting than what you were saying. That's what I'm here for. Uh, no, um, in all seriousness. To to flatter my already immense ego. 
I want to answer a question that came up in the chat was people not understanding why the empire was popular. Um, and I, I want to say this. Same, I can explain that in one word. Style. The same reason why people like to dress up as, uh, as Nazis as opposed to no one wants to dress up as a commies because the commies had ugly uniforms and the Nazis looked really slick. No, I'm, I'm not talking about, they're not talking about popular among like us, people who watch the movies. They're talking about popular among people in the galaxy. Why would they, um, you know, why would they all not rebel against the empire? And what it boils <laughs> down to is scale. <laughs> Sorry, pardon me for laughing. Uh, ask whoever asked that why he isn't rebelling against the oppressions that are presently rolling into the United States. Um, because it takes a particular kind of bravery, and you also have to be in a position to be able to do something about it. And also, if the Empire comes up and says, hey, look, there's piracy in this area, there's crime in this area, look, you're running out of food, we're here to help you. And they and, do it. And then they do it. I can tell you why the, the the Roman Empire welcomed the Roman Republic welcomed an empire because they were so sick of the civil wars caused by the ruling families squabbling with each other and causing and, and causing wars with each other. So I, the, that's one reason why I think the prequels are a failure. They didn't show the real reason why an empire why a republic turns into an empire. The real reason is because people lose faith in, in in the in, in the Constitution. The Romans lost faith in the in the senatorial system and they wanted one dictator they wanted one one leader to, to simply solve all the problems for them now I, I admit there is a line i think in the prequel where uh, anakin skywalker says we should just stop all this debating and, and just start getting things done and uh, uh princess uh, leia's mom whose name i can't remember uh padme uh looks at him and says wait you don't really mean that and he goes well yeah i kind of do <laughs> they talk about sand or something but the the, the reason why the people don't the reason why people don't rise up in rebellion against an empire is because, uh, uh, first, they don't want their planet blown up by the Death Star. Second, they still believe that the system will work. And third, the empire seems to be solving more problems than it's causing. People like the mm -hmm. idea that the promise of a strong leader will will sweep in and rescue them. It's, it's as old as mankind. And the fourth one is that the problem is one of scale. The empire doesn't oppress everyone all the time because it simply can't. Um, I read an article where they said that there are, uh, the current estimate is that there are 5 billion habitable Earth-like planets in the Milky Way, um, which is up from the earlier estimate of 250 million. Well, if you've got 5 billion planets in your galaxy and let's be kind and say on the outer rim or whatever uh there's a billion stars that you just haven't brought into the empire so there's four billion planets yes. you can't afford to build an imperial navy and an imperial legions to stand on every street corner like in nazi germany Right. You just can't. And so living in the empire is not like living in Nazi Germany or like living in communist uh, well, East Germany. Say they, one they other had, thing. Say one other thing about the about the scale involved. If you just play with the numbers for a moment. Suppose your taxes under under Emperor uh, Malignant the Atrocious, not to be confused with Atrocitus the Malignant, uh, were fairly light. He only demands one 
soldier per year from your planet. He's now got a four billion man army. Yeah. Now, four billion man army, the first planet that rebels, you land that army on one planet of the billion and you destroy it. So its neighbors don't rebel because it sees what happens to the rebel planet. You understand how the scaling works here? Let's suppose yeah. let's suppose it takes 10 or 20 planets worth of GNP of gross national product for the whole planet to make a superstar destroyer. So out of a billion, that means, and it takes 10 planets to make one, so that means what, 100 million superstar destroyers? Let's say a superstar destroyer carries enough nuclear weapons to, to uh, uh, sterilize the surface of any world. So you only need one uh, ship with maybe some escort ships to, to protect it, some fighters, to go to a rebel world and bomb it to nothing. Okay? Now, and you've got 10... You've got 100,000 of those, so you station you station one ship per every 10 planets. And whichever the first one of the 10 is that gives you trouble, you go bomb it. But otherwise, if you're clever, like the Romans were, you just live and let live. The Romans let you follow your own laws as long as you paid your taxes and you didn't, and you worshiped the emperor and you didn't create too much commotion. So every local planet can govern its, can govern its own affairs. Does that make sense? Yeah. And... Keep in mind that in this background, you've taken over from a republic where you've already got a bureaucracy, you've already got a postal service, you've already got a, a, a trade routes, you've already got guilds that tie these planets together with each other so they don't want to rebel. I mean, if you even on our one small planet right now, a war that is a local war that hasn't even turned into a world war, and I pray God it does not, costs, disrupts worldwide trade and cost money so people don't want to do it see the, in um, other words the, the the empire is the galaxy is way too big for one guy to domineer and to put a cop on every street corner you are correct but he also has all those resources which means he can concentrate much more power on any one that rebels first and you only need to stop the first rebel see the uh so when you're when you're looking at it, life for your average person under the empire and under the rebellion didn't really change much. Yeah. Um, and the official it, sources don't, aren't going to tell you anything. The empire is doing is bad. All you're going to hear is propaganda if you're a normal citizen. Excuse me, a normal subject. You're, no one's a citizen anymore. So all the empire has to do really is just let things go along the same way they were and do things publicly that makes life better crack down on the crime lords crack down on pirates yep. uh you know rein in the worst excesses of uh uh whoever the money makers at the beginning of the yeah prequels were and you just you just pick a scapegoat and you blame all the all the bad things on the scapegoat it's 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 a, it's a policy as old as time everyone yeah. knows how to do it you know so yeah that's that's why the empire's popular is most people got left alone and and the propaganda they see and in truth they their life was the same or better I'm not saying that makes the empire good, mind you. I'm just no, saying. But I can tell you why in history the Roman Empire was so popular and was supported by all the people that it conquered. 
Oh, you, you guys just reminded me. I think you're just replaying Monty Python's sketch. I think they did it best. What would a room ever do for us? <laughs> An aqueduct. A naked version with a bag of gold could walk from could walk from northern France to southern Palestine in safety. Okay, in the Roman Empire, and the only people they crucified were criminals or people who tried to make themselves king. You know, it's not like they ever crucified a good guy. That that would be that would be outrageous against the Roman law, right? I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you have to crack a few eggs to make an omelet, but aside from that, uh, so yeah, that's why. And also, the Galactic Empire is just the Roman Empire in space. We all know it. They don't they don't act or behave like a Chinese Empire, or like an Aztec Empire. They've got Praetorian guards. I mean, they've got a Senate. We all recognize what's what it really is. It's the British. Or, you know, that's why they all British accents. All right. So yeah. here's here's my follow-up question to you. Um I don't want to know about any more about these other people's genius visions. I want to know uh what role-playing games or what tabletop games uh, you're coming out with, or you you think that your works would make good games? I'm not planning on publishing any 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 role playing games. If that's what you're asking, uh, my the the Orphans of Chaos that Daddy Warpig uh, has read would make a perfect tabletop uh, role playing game because the the power system is set up with a paper scissors rock uh, cycle, so that no matter how powerful you are with a given power, there's always one power that can stop you, but that guy also has a power that can stop him. So basically you have to cooperate with, with uh, at least, at least three or maybe five other people who are not of your background, <laughs> not of your heritage uh, in order to prevail in any, in any particular combat. And it would be, it would be a useful thing to put into a role-playing game because you wouldn't need much by way of a, a character sheet. It, it works, it works rather legalistically that in that, in that story. Uh, I mean, by legalistically, I mean either you either you you prevail overwhelmingly or you fail overwhelmingly. There's not much uh, there's not much in uh, room for uh, ambiguous outcomes in the Orphans of Chaos background. So definitely less of a war game, more of a storyboard game. Uh, I'm not sure I know the difference. All the all the games I run or play and end up being storytelling type games, more similar to. Uh, World of Darkness uh, games than anything else. Mm. In World of Darkness, they deliberately tried to make the storytelling element the central the central theme of the game, and and they relied less on complex dice mechanics. Um, I've got some bad news. Yes, we are almost out of time. Oh. Well, we have been on for an hour and 15 minutes, so it uh, might be a good time to say goodbye. I, I, I think we have to. Oh, it's never a good time to say goodbye. <laughs> but we do have to do it. Um, Mr. Wright, it's awesome to have you back. Any last words or any, any previews or any new work that you want to clue us in on? Anything the work I'm working on right now and the one that I will... Uh, the one that I will return to as soon as I hang up on you is uh, is the sixth book in my Star Quest series, which is my cheap knockoff of uh, Star Wars. Oh, I will also mention I now do a weekly uh, oratorio, a weekly screed based on my series of articles called The Last Crusade, 
which is a which is a name that I'm stealing shamelessly from G.K. Chesterton in his wonderful work, uh, The Man Who Was Thursday, where I am kvetching and uh, and uh, caterwauling about the woes of the modern world, but also offering what I think is a reasonable path out of the labyrinth. Uh, and uh, I've got like, I don't know, 500, 500 views. So it's not a big deal. But if your uh, listeners also tune in to, it's called, uh, it's called The Last Crusade. You can find it under Voice of Reason. It has its own channel on uh, YouTube. The Last Crusade on the yep. Voice of Reason channel. Yep. Yes, because I start every I start every screed by claiming to be the voice of reason. So no one ever said humility was my was my overweening flaw. I've noticed a theme in you know in today's discussion, and and I'm ready to corroborate that statement. <laughs> yeah, I see. The problem is I'm always so proud of how humble I am. It just it it, it turns out not to not to work out. <laughs> In all fairness, I got that joke from Ben Franklin, who told it a lot more wittily, a lot more cleverly than I just did. So if you uh, if you guys need uh, need a book to read, read Ben Franklin's autobiography before you read anything I write, because you'll 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 thank me. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for uh, being on, and I really appreciate. It. We didn't we didn't specifically call out the chat uh, this time, but. Uh, a lot of you, you're definitely responding to chat here. It's awesome to see everybody hanging out. Uh, you got you got some fans in here. Uh, it's good to have them hanging out. And I hope everybody listening later really enjoyed the show. Um, but I'm also going to say goodbye and give it away to Daddy Warpig. All right. Uh, I also would like to thank our inimitable guest for agreeing to come on the show again. Um, and... Uh, like I thought, we had plenty to talk about, even though we didn't have a specific topic in <laughs> mind. Um, and uh, we like to thank everybody who listened live and all of you who will listen later. Remember, you can check out the show on youtube.com slash geekgab, youtube.com slash geekgab. We do the show on Saturdays, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. So you can come and listen live, participate in the chat with all the amazingly intelligent and unusually attractive members of our audience. Or you can catch it later on YouTube. All of our shows going back seven, eight years are available right here on YouTube. Or you can catch us on the Google Play Store, the iTunes Store, or on soundcloud.com. Subscribe to us on the device of your choice. Uh, Android phones, I, uh, Apple phones, iPhones, yeah, Apple iPhones. And uh, just listen to us on the web or download it to your computer. Um, that is everything for today, folks. We are signing out, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will. Be back.